The Golden Bow by Sir James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bow by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 57 Public Scapegoats. Section 1 The Expulsion of Embodied Evils. Thus far, we have dealt with that class of the general expulsion of evils, which I have called direct or immediate. In this class, the evils are invisible, at least to common eyes, and the mode of deliverance consists for the most part in beating the empty air and raising such a hubbub as may scare the mischievous spirits and put them to flight. It remains to illustrate the second class of expulsions, in which the evil influences are embodied in a visible form, or are at least supposed to be loaded upon a material medium, which acts as a vehicle to draw them off from the people, village, or town. The Pomos of California celebrate an expulsion of devils every seven years, at which the devils are represented by disguised men. Quote, Twenty or thirty men array themselves in harlequin rig and barbaric paint, and put vessels of pitch on their heads. Then they secretly go out into the surrounding mountains. These are to personify the devils. A herald goes up to the top of the assembly house and makes a speech to the multitude. At a signal agreed upon in the evening, the masqueraders come in from the mountains with the vessels of pitch flaming on their heads and with all the frightful accessories of noise, motion, and costume which the savage mind can devise in representation of demons. The terrified women and children flee for life. The men huddle them inside a circle, and, on the principle of fighting the devil with fire, they swing blazing firebrands in the air, yell, whoop, and make frantic dashes at the marauding and bloodthirsty devils, so creating a terrific spectacle, and striking great fear into the hearts of the assembled hundreds of women, who are screaming and fainting and clinging to their valorous protectors. Finally, the devils succeed in getting into the assembly house, and the bravest of the men enter and hold a parley with them. As a conclusion of the whole farce, the men summon courage, the devils are expelled from the assembly house, and with a prodigious row and racket of sham fighting, are chased away into the mountains. In spring, as soon as the willow leaves were full grown on the banks of the river, the Mandan Indians celebrated their great annual festival, one of the features of which was the expulsion of the devil. A man, painted black to represent the devil, entered the village from the prairie, chased and frightened the women, and acted the part of a buffalo bull in the buffalo dance, the object of which was to ensure a plentiful supply of buffaloes during the ensuing year. Finally, he was chased from the village, the women pursuing him with hisses and jibes, beating him with sticks and pelting him with dirt. Some of the native tribes of central Queensland believe in a noxious being called Molonga, who prowls unseen and would kill men and violate women if certain ceremonies were not performed. 
These ceremonies last for five nights and consist of dances in which only men, fantastically painted and adorned, take part. On the fifth night, Molonga himself, personified by a man tricked out with red ochre and feathers and carrying a long feather-tipped spear, rushes forth from the darkness at the spectators and makes as if he would run them through. Great is the excitement, loud are the shrieks and shouts, but after another feigned attack the demon vanishes in the gloom. On the last night of the year, the palace of the kings of Cambodia is purged of devils. Men painted as fiends are chased by elephants about the palace courts. When they have been expelled, a consecrated thread of cotton is stretched round the palace to keep them out. In Menzurabad, a district of Mysore in southern India, when cholera or smallpox has broken out in a parish, the inhabitants assemble and conjure the demon of the disease into a wooden image, which they carry, generally at midnight, into the next parish. The inhabitants of that parish, in like manner, pass the image on to their neighbors, and thus the demon is expelled from one village after another, until he comes to the bank of a river into which he is finally thrown. Oftener, however, the expelled demons are not represented at all, but are understood to be present invisibly in the material and visible vehicle which conveys them away. Here again, it will be convenient to distinguish between occasional and periodical expulsions. We begin with the former. Section 2. The Occasional Expulsion of Evils in a Material Vehicle The vehicle which conveys away the demons may be of various kinds. A common one is a little ship or boat. Thus, in the southern district of the island of Seram, when a whole village suffers from sickness, a small ship is made and filled with rice, tobacco, eggs, and so forth, which have been contributed by all the people. A little sail is hoisted on the ship. When all is ready, a man calls out in a very loud voice, O all ye sicknesses, ye smallpoxes, agues, measles, etc., who have visited us so long and wasted us so sorely, but who now cease to plague us, we have made ready this ship for you, and we have furnished you with provender sufficient for the voyage. Ye shall have no lack of food, nor of betel leaves, nor of areca nuts, nor of tobacco. Depart, and sail away from us directly. Never come near us again, but go to a land which is far from here. Let all the tides and winds waft you speedily thither, and so convey you thither that for the time to come we may live sound and well, and that we may never see the sun rise on you again. The ten or twelve men carry the vessel to the shore and let it drift away with the land breeze, feeling convinced that they are free from sickness forever, or at least till the next time. If sickness attacks them again, they are sure it is not the same sickness but a different one, which in due time they dismiss in the same manner. When the demon-laden bark is lost to sight, the bearers return to the village, whereupon a man cries out, The sicknesses are now gone, vanished, expelled, and sailed away. At this, all the people come running out of their houses, 
passing the word from one to the other with great joy, beating on gongs and on tinkling instruments. Similar ceremonies are commonly resorted to in other East Indian islands. Thus in Timorlaut, to mislead the demons who are causing sickness, a small proa, containing the image of a man and provisioned for a long voyage, is allowed to drift away with wind and tide. As it is being launched, the people cry, O oh, sickness, go from here, turn back, what do you hear in this poor land? Three days after this ceremony, a pig is killed, and part of the flesh is offered to Dudila'a, who lives in the sun. One of the oldest men says, Old sir, I beseech you, make well the grandchildren, children, women, and men, that we may be able to eat pork and rice and to drink palm wine. I will keep my promise. Eat your share and make all the people in the village well. If the proa is stranded at any inhabited spot, the sickness will break out there. Hence, a stranded proa excites much alarm amongst the coast population, and they immediately burn it, because demons fly from fire. In the island of Buru, the proa which carries away the demons of disease is about twenty feet long, rigged out with sails, oars, anchors, and so on, and well stocked with provisions. For a day and a night, the people beat gongs and drums and rush about to frighten the demons. Next morning, ten stalwart young men strike the people with branches, which have been previously dipped in an earthen pot of water. As soon as they have done so, they run down to the beach, put the branches on board the proa, launch another boat in great haste, and tow the disease-burdened bark far out to sea. There they cast it off, and one of them calls out, Grandfather Smallpox, go away, go willingly away, go visit another land. We have made you food ready for the voyage. We have now nothing more to give. When they have landed, all the people bathe together in the sea. In this ceremony, the reason for striking the people with the branches is clearly to rid them of the diseased demons, which are then supposed to be transferred to the branches. Hence, the haste with which the branches are deposited on the proa and towed away to sea. So in the island districts of Seram, when smallpox or other sickness is raging, the priest strikes all the houses with consecrated branches, which are then thrown into the river to be carried down to the sea, exactly as amongst the Wotyaks of Russia, the sticks with which have been used for expelling the devils from the village are thrown into the river that the current may sweep the baleful burden away. The plan of putting puppets in the boat to represent sick persons in order to lure the demons after them is not uncommon. For example, most of the pagan tribes on the coast of Borneo seek to drive away epidemic disease as follows. They carve one or more rough human images from the pith of the sago palm and place them on a small raft or boat or full-rigged melee ship together with rice or other food. The boat is decked with blossoms of areca palm, and with ribbons made from its leaves, and thus adorned, the little craft is allowed to float out to sea with the ebb tide, bearing, as the people fondly think or hope, the sickness away with it. Often, 
The vehicle which carries away the collected demons or ills of the whole community is an animal or scapegoat. In the central provinces of India, when cholera breaks out in the village, every one retires after sunset to his house. The priests then parade the streets, taking from the roof of each house a straw, which is burnt with an offering of rice, ghee, and turmeric, at some shrine to the east of the village. Chickens daubed with vermilion are driven away in the direction of the smoke, and are believed to carry the disease with them. If they fail, goats are tied, and last of all, pigs. When cholera rages among the bars, malans, and kurmis of India, they take a goat or a buffalo. In either case, the animal must be a female, and as black as possible. Then, having tied some grain, cloves, and red lead in a yellow cloth on its back, they turn it out of the village. The animal is conducted beyond the boundary and not allowed to return. Sometimes the buffalo is marked with a red pigment and driven to the next village where he carries the plague with him. Amongst the Dinkas, a pastoral people of the West Nile, each family possesses a sacred cow. When the country is threatened with war, famine, or any other public calamity, the chiefs of the village require a particular family to surrender their sacred cow to serve as a scapegoat. The animal is driven by the women to the brink of the river and across it to the other bank, there to wander in the wilderness and fall prey to ravening beasts. Then the women return in silence and without looking behind them. Were they to cast a backward glance, they imagine that the ceremony would have no effect. In 1857, when the Aymara Indians of Bolivia and Peru were suffering from a plague, they loaded a black llama with the clothes of the plague-stricken people, sprinkled brandy on the clothes, and then turned the animal loose on the mountains, hoping that it would carry the pest away with it. Occasionally, the scapegoat was a man. For example, from time to time, the gods used to warn the king of Uganda that his foes, the Banyoro, were working magic against him and his people to make them die of disease. To avert such a catastrophe, the king would send a scapegoat to the frontier of Bunyoro, the land of the enemy. The scapegoat consisted of either a man and a boy, or a woman and her child, chosen because of some mark or bodily defect, which the gods had noticed and by which the victims were to be recognized. With the human victims were sent a cow, a goat, a fowl, and a dog, and a strong guard escorted them to the land which the god had indicated. There the limbs of the victims were broken, and they were left to die a lingering death in the enemy's country, being too crippled to crawl back to Uganda. The disease or plague was thought to have been thus transferred to the victims, and to have been conveyed back in their persons to the land from which it came. Some of the aboriginal tribes of China, as a protection against pestilence, select a man of great muscular strength to act the part of scapegoat. Having besmeared his face with paint, he performs many antics with the view of enticing all pestilential and noxious influences to attach themselves to him only. He is assisted by a priest. Finally, the scapegoat, hotly pursued by men and women beating gongs and tom-toms, is driven with great haste out of the town or village. In the Punjab, 
a cure for the murrain is to hire a man of the Chumar caste, turn his face away from the village, brand him with a red-hot sickle, and let him go out into the jungle, taking the murrain with him. He must not look back. Section 3. The Periodic Expulsion of Evils in a Material Vehicle the immediate expulsion of evils by means of a scapegoat or other material vehicle, like the immediate expulsion of them in invisible form, tends to become periodic, and for like reason. Thus, every year, generally in March, the people of Leti, Moa, and Lakor, islands of the Indian archipelago, send away all their diseases to sea. They make a proa about six feet long, rig it with sails, oars, rudder, and other gear, and every family deposits in it some rice, fruit, a fowl, two eggs, insects that ravage the field, and so on. Then they let it drift away to sea, saying, Take away from here all kinds of sickness. Take them to other islands, to other lands. Distribute them in places that lie eastward where the sun rises. The Biajas of Borneo annually sent to sea a little bark laden with the sins and misfortunes of the people. The crew of any ship that falls in with the ill-omened bark at sea will suffer all the sorrows with which it is laden. A like custom is annually observed by the Dusuns of the Taurain district in British North Borneo. The ceremony is the most important of the whole year. The aim is to bring good luck to the villages during the ensuing year by solemnly expelling all the evil spirits that may have collected in or about the houses throughout the last twelve months. The task of routing out the demons and banishing them devolves chiefly on women. Dressed in their finest array, they go in procession through the village. One of them carries a small sucking pig in a basket on her back, and all of them bear wands, with which they belabor the little pig at the appropriate moment. Its squeals help to attract the vagrant spirits. At every house, the women dance and sing, clashing castanets or cymbals of brass and jingling bunches of little brass bells in both hands. When the performance has been repeated at every house in the village, the procession defiles down to the river, and all the evil spirits, which the performers have chased from the houses, follow them to the edge of the water. There, a raft has been made, ready and moored to the bank. It contains offerings of food, cloth, cooking pots, and swords, and the deck is crowded with figures of men, women, animals, and birds, all made out of the leaves of the sago palm. The evil spirits now embark on the raft, and when they are all aboard, it is pushed off and allowed to float down with the current, carrying the demons with it. Should the raft run aground near the village, it is shoved off with all speed, lest the invisible passengers should seize the opportunity of landing and returning to the village. Finally, the sufferings of the little pig, whose squeals serve to decoy the demons from their lurking places, are terminated by death, for it is killed and its carcass thrown away. Every year, at the beginning of the dry season, the Nicobar islanders carry the model of a ship through their villages. The devils are chased out of the huts and driven on board the little ship, which is then launched and suffered to sail away with the wind. The ceremony has been described by a catechist, 
who witnessed it at Kar Nicobar in July, 1897. For three days the people were busy preparing two very large floating cars, shaped like canoes, fitted with sails, and loaded with certain leaves which possessed the valuable property of expelling devils. While the young people were thus engaged, the exorcists and the elders sat in a house singing songs by turns, but often they would come forth, pace the beach armed with rods, and forbid the devil to enter the village. The fourth day of the solemnity bore a name which means expelling the devil by sails. In the evening, all the villagers assembled, the women bringing baskets of ashes and bunches of devil-expelling leaves. These leaves were then distributed to everybody, old and young. When all was ready, a band of robust men, attended by a guard of exorcists, carried one of the cars down to the sea on the right side of the village graveyard and set it floating in the water. As soon as they had returned, another band of men carried the other car to the beach and floated it similarly in the sea to the left of the graveyard. The demon-laden barks being now launched, the women threw ashes from the shore, and the whole crowd shouted, saying, Fly away, devil, fly away! Never come again! The wind and the tide being favorable, the canoes sailed quickly away, and that night all the people feasted together with great joy, because the devil had departed in the direction of Chowra. A similar expulsion of devils takes place once a year in other Nicobar villages, but the ceremonies are held at different times in different places. Amongst many of the aboriginal tribes of China, a great festival is celebrated in the third month of every year. It is held by way of a general rejoicing over what the people believe to be a total annihilation of the ills of the past twelve months. The destruction is supposed to be effected in the following way. A large earthenware jar filled with gunpowder, stones, and bits of iron is buried in the earth. A train of gunpowder, communicating with the jar, is then laid, and a match being applied, the jar and its contents are blown up. The stones and bits of iron represent the ills and disasters of the past year, and the dispersion of them by the explosion is believed to remove the ills and disasters themselves. The festival is attended with much reveling and drunkenness. At Old Calabar, on the coast of Guinea, the devils and ghosts are, or used to be, publicly expelled once in two years. Among the spirits thus driven from their haunts are the souls of all the people who died since the last lustration of the town. About three weeks or a month before the expulsion, which according to one account takes place in the month of November, Rude effigies, representing men and animals, such as crocodiles, leopards, elephants, bullocks, and birds, are made of wickerwork or wood, and being hung with strips of cloth and bedizened with gigaws, are set before the door of every house. About three o'clock in the morning of the day appointed for the ceremony, the whole population turns out into the streets, and proceeds with a deafening uproar and in a state of the wildest excitement to drive all lurking devils and ghosts into the effigies, in order that they may be banished with them from the abodes of men. For this purpose, bands of people roam through the streets, knocking on doors, firing guns, beating drums, blowing on horns, ringing bells, clattering pots and pans, 
shouting and hallowing with might and main, in short, making all the noise it is possible for them to raise. The hubbub goes on till the approach of dawn, when it gradually subsides and ceases altogether at sunrise. By this time the houses have been thoroughly swept, and all the frightened spirits are supposed to have huddled into the effigies or their fluttering drapery. In these wicker figures are also deposited the sweepings of the houses and the ashes of yesterday's fires. Then the demon-laden images are hastily snatched up, carried in tumultuous procession down to the brink of the river, and thrown into the water to the tuck of drums. The ebb-tide bears them away seaward, and thus the town is swept clean of ghosts and devils for another two years. Similar annual expulsions of embodied evils are not unknown in Europe. On the evening of Easter Sunday, the gypsies of southern Europe take a wooden vessel, like a bandbox, which rests cradle-wise on two cross-pieces of wood. In this, they place herbs and simples, together with the dried carcass of a snake or lizard, which every person present must have touched with his fingers. The vessel is then wrapped in white and red wool, carried by the oldest man from tent to tent, and finally thrown into running water, not, however, before every member of the band has spat into it once, and the sorceress has uttered some spell over it. They believe that by performing this ceremony, they dispel all the illnesses that would otherwise have afflicted them in the course of the year, and that if any one finds the vessel and opens it out of curiosity, he and his will be visited by all the maladies which the others have escaped. The scapegoat, by means of which the accumulated ills of a whole year are publicly expelled, is sometimes an animal. For example, among the Garros of Assam, quote, Besides the sacrifices for individual cases of illness, there are certain ceremonies which are observed once a year by a whole community or village and are intended to safeguard its members from dangers of the forest, and from sickness and mishap during the coming twelve months. The principal of these is the Asangtata ceremony. Close to the outskirts of every big village, a number of stones may be noticed stuck into the ground, apparently without order or method. These are known by the name of Asang, and on them is offered the sacrifice which the Asangtata demands. The sacrifice of a goat takes place, and a month later, that of the langur, or a bamboo rat, is considered necessary. The animal chosen has a rope fastened round its neck, and is led by two men, one on each side of it, to every house in the village. It is taken inside each house in turn, the assembled villagers, meanwhile, beating the walls from the outside, to frighten and drive out any evil spirits which may have taken up their residence within. The round of the village having been made in this manner, the monkey or rat is led to the outskirts of the village, killed by a blow of a dao, which disembowels it, and then crucified on bamboos set up in the ground. Round the crucified animal, long, sharp bamboo stakes are placed, which form chevaux de frise round about it. These commemorate the days when such defenses surrounded the villages on all sides to keep off human enemies and they are now a symbol to ward off sickness and dangers to life from the wild animals of the forest. The languor required for the purpose is hunted down some days before. 
but should it be found impossible to catch one, a brown monkey may take its place. A hulak may not be used. Here, the crucified ape or rat is the public scapegoat, which, by its vicarious sufferings and death, relieves the people from all sickness and mishap in the coming year. Again, on one day of the year, the Botias of Juhar in the western Himalayas take a dog, intoxicate him with spirits and bang or hemp, and having fed him with sweetmeats, lead him round the village and let him loose. Then they chase and kill him with sticks and stones, and believe that, when they have done so, no disease or misfortune will visit the village during the year. In some parts of Red Albane, it was formerly the custom on New Year's Day to take a dog to the door, give him a bit of bread, and drive him out, saying, Get away, you dog! Whatever death of men or loss of cattle would happen to this house to the end of the present year, may it all light on your head! On the Day of Atonement, which was the tenth day of the seventh month, the Jewish high priest laid both his hands on the head of a live goat, confessed over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and having thereby transferred the sins of the people to the beast, sent it away into the wilderness. The scapegoat upon whom the sins of the people are periodically laid may also be a human being. At Onitsha on the Niger, two human beings used to be annually sacrificed to take away the sins of the land. The victims were purchased by public subscription. All persons who, during the past year, had fallen into gross sins, such as incendiarism, theft, adultery, witchcraft, and so forth, were expected to contribute twenty-eight mugas, or a little over two pounds. The money thus collected was taken into the interior of the country and expended in the purchase of two sickly persons, quote, to be offered as a sacrifice for all these abominable crimes, one for the land and one for the river. Close quote. A man from a neighboring town was hired to put them to death. On the 27th of February, 1858, the Reverend G. C. Taylor witnessed the sacrifice of one of these victims. The sufferer was a woman, about 19 or 20 years of age. They dragged her alive along the ground, face downward, from the king's house to the river, a distance of two miles. The crowds who accompanied her crying, Wickedness! Wickedness! The intention was, quote, to take away the iniquities of the land. The body was dragged along in a merciless manner, as if the weight of all their wickedness was thus carried away. Close quote. Similar customs are said to be still secretly practiced every year by many tribes in the delta of the Niger, in spite of the vigilance of the British government. Among the Yoruba Negroes of West Africa, quote, the human victim chosen for sacrifice, and who may be either a freeborn or a slave, a person of noble or wealthy parentage, or one of humble birth, is, after he has been chosen and marked out for the purpose, called an aluwo. He is always well fed and nourished, and supplied with whatever he should desire during the period of his confinement. When the occasion arrives for him to be sacrificed and offered up, he is commonly led about and paraded through the streets of the town or city of the sovereign, who would sacrifice him for the well-being of his government, 
and of every family and individual under it, in order that he might carry off the sin, guilt, misfortune, and death of all without exception. Ashes and chalk would be employed to hide his identity by the one being freely thrown over his head, and his face painted with the latter, whilst individuals would often rush out of their houses to lay their hands upon him, that they might thus transfer to him their sin, guilt, trouble, and death. This parade over, he is taken to an inner sanctuary and beheaded. His last words or dying groans are the signal for an outburst of joy among the people assembled outside, who believe that the sacrifice has been accepted and the divine wrath appeased. In Siam, it used to be the custom on one day of the year to single out a woman broken down by debauchery and carry her on a litter through all the streets to the music of drums and hautboys. The mob insulted her and pelted her with dirt, and after having carried her through the whole city, they threw her on a dunghill or a hedge of thorns outside the ramparts, forbidding her ever to enter the walls again. They believed that the woman thus drew upon herself all the malign influences of the air and of evil spirits. The Bataks of Sumatra offer either a red horse or a buffalo as a public sacrifice to purify the land and obtain the favor of the gods. Formerly, it is said, a man was bound to the same stake as the buffalo, and when they killed the animal, the man was driven away. No one might receive him, converse with him, or give him food. Doubtless, he was supposed to carry away the sins and misfortunes of the people. Sometimes the scapegoat is a divine animal. The people of Malabar share the Hindu reverence for the cow to kill and eat which, quote, they esteem to be the crime as heinous as homicide or willful murder. Close quote. Nevertheless, they, quote, Brahmans transfer the sins of the people into one or more cows, which they are then carried away, both the cows and the sins wherewith the beasts are charged, to what place the Brahman shall appoint. Close quote. When the ancient Egyptians sacrificed a bull, they invoked upon its head all the evils that might otherwise befall themselves and the land of Egypt, and thereupon they either sold the bull's head to the Greeks or cast it into the river. Now it cannot be said that in times known to us the Egyptians worshipped bulls in general, for they seem to have commonly killed and eaten them. But a good many circumstances point to the conclusion that originally all cattle, bulls as well as cows, were held sacred by the Egyptians. For not only were the cows esteemed holy by them and never sacrificed, but even bulls might not be sacrificed unless they had certain natural marks. A priest examined every bull before it was sacrificed. If it had the proper marks, he put his seal on the animal in token that it might be sacrificed. And if a man sacrificed a bull which had not been sealed, he was put to death. Moreover, the worship of the black bulls Apis and Nevis, especially the former, played an important part in Egyptian religion. All bulls that died a natural death were carefully buried in the suburbs of the city, and their bones were afterwards collected from all parts of Egypt and interred in a single spot, and at the sacrifice of a bull in the great rites of Isis, 
all the worshippers beat their breasts and mourned. On the whole, then, we are perhaps entitled to infer that bulls were originally, as cows were always, esteemed sacred by the Egyptians, and that the slain bull upon whose head they laid the misfortunes of the people was once a divine scapegoat. It seems not improbable that the lamb annually slain by the Matus of Central Africa is a divine scapegoat, and the same supposition may partly explain the Zuni sacrifice of the turtle. Lastly, the scapegoat may be a divine man. Thus, in November, the Gons of India worship Gansim Deo, the protector of the crops, and at the festival the god himself is said to descend on the head of one of the worshippers who was suddenly seized with a kind of fit and after staggering about rushes off into the jungle where it is believed that if left to himself he would die mad however they bring him back but he does not recover his senses for one or two days the people think that one man is thus singled out as a scapegoat for the sins of the rest of the village in the temple of the moon the albanians of the eastern caucasus kept a number of sacred slaves of whom many were inspired and prophesied when any one of these men exhibited more than the usual symptoms of inspiration or insanity and wandered solitary up and down the woods like the gond in the jungle the high priest had him bound with a sacred chain and maintained him in luxury for a year at the end of the year he was anointed with ungates and led forth to be sacrificed. A man whose business it was to slay these human victims, and to whom practice had given dexterity, advanced from the crowd, and thrust a sacred spear into the victim's side, piercing his heart. From the manner in which the slain man fell, omens were drawn as to the welfare of the commonwealth. Then the body was carried to a certain spot, where all the people stood upon it as a purificatory ceremony. This last circumstance clearly indicates that the sins of the people were transferred to the victim, just as the Jewish priest transferred the sins of the people to the scapegoat by laying his hands on the animal's head, and since the man was believed to be possessed by a divine spirit, we have here an undoubted example of a man-god slain to take away the sins and misfortunes of the people. In Tibet, the ceremony of the scapegoat presents some remarkable features. The Tibetan New Year begins with the new moon, which appears about the 15th of February. For 23 days afterwards, the government of Lhasa, the capital, is taken out of the hands of the ordinary rulers and entrusted to the monk of the Dibang Monastery, who offers to pay the highest sum for the privilege. The successful bidder is called the Jalno, and he announces his ascension to power in person, going through the streets of Lhasa with a silver stick in his hand. Monks from all the neighboring monasteries and temples assemble to pay him homage. The Jalno exercises his authority in the most arbitrary manner for his own benefit, as all the fines which he exacts are his by purchase. The profit he makes is about ten times the amount of the purchase money. His men go about the streets in order to discover any conduct on the part of the inhabitants that can be found fault with. Every house in Lhasa is taxed at this time, 
and the slightest offence is punished with unsparing rigour by fines. The severity of the Jalno drives all working classes out of the city till the twenty-three days are over, but if the laity go out, the clergy come in. All the Buddhist monasteries of the country for miles round about open their gates and disgorge their inmates. All the roads that lead down into Lhasa from the neighbouring mountains are full of monks carrying to the capital, some on foot, some on horseback, some riding asses or lowing oxen, all carrying their prayer books and culinary utensils. In such multitudes do they come that the streets and squares of the city are encumbered with their swarms and incarnadined with their red cloaks. The disorder and confusion are indescribable. Bands of the holy men traverse the streets chanting prayers or uttering wild cries. They meet, they jostle, they quarrel, they fight. Bloody noses, black eyes, and broken heads are freely given and received. All day long, too, from before the peep of dawn till after darkness has fallen, these red cloak monks hold services in the dim, incense-laden air of the great Machindranath temple, the cathedral of Lhasa, and thither they crowd thrice a day to receive their doles of tea and soup and money. The cathedral is a vast building, standing in the centre of the city and surrounded by bazaars and shops. The idols in it are richly inlaid with gold and precious stones. Twenty-four days after the Jalno has ceased to have authority, he assumes it again, and for ten days acts in the same arbitrary manner as before. On the first of the ten days, the priests again assemble at the cathedral, pray to the gods to prevent sickness and other evils among the people, quote, and as a peace-offering sacrifice one man. The man is not killed purposely, but the ceremony he undergoes often proves fatal. Grain is thrown against his head, and his face is painted half white, half black. Thus, grotesquely disguised and carrying a coat of skin on his arm, he is called the King of the Years, and sits daily in the marketplace, where he helps himself to whatever he likes, and goes about shaking a black yak's tail over the people, who thus transfer their bad luck to him. On the tenth day, all the troops of Lhasa march to the great temple and form in line before it. The king of the years is brought forth from the temple and receives small donations from the assembled multitude. He then ridicules the Jalno, saying to him, Whatever we perceive through the five senses is no illusion. All you teach is untrue. And the like. The Jalno, who represents the Grand Lama for the time being, contests these heretical opinions. The dispute waxes warm, and at last both agree to decide the question at issue by a cast of the dice, the Jalno offering to change places with the scapegoat should the throw be against him. If the king of the years wins, much evil is prognosticated, but if the Jalno wins, there is great rejoicing, for it proves that his adversary has been accepted by the gods as a victim to bear all the sins of the people of Lhasa. Fortune, however, always favors the Jalno, who throws sixes with unvarying success, while his opponent turns up only ones. Nor, 
is this so extraordinary as at first sight as it might appear, for the Jalno's dice are marked with nothing but sixes and his adversaries with nothing but ones. When he sees the finger of providence thus plainly pointed against him, the king of years is terrified and flees away upon a white horse with a white dog, a white bird, salt, and so forth, which have all been provided for him by the government. His face is still painted half white and half black, and he still wears his leathern coat. The whole populace pursues him, hooting, yelling, and firing blank shots in volleys after him. Thus driven out of the city, he is detained for seven days in the great chamber of horrors at the Samyas Monastery, surrounded by monstrous and terrific images of devils and skins of huge serpents and wild beasts. Thence he goes away into the mountains of Chitang, where he is to remain an outcast for several months or a year in a narrow den. If he dies before the time is out, the people say it is an auspicious omen, but if he survives, he may return to Lhasa and play the part of scapegoat over again the following year. This quaint ceremonial, still annually observed in the secluded capital of Buddhism, the Rome of Asia, is interesting because it exhibits, in a clearly marked religious stratification, a series of divine redeemers, themselves redeemed, of vicarious sacrifices, vicariously atoned for, of gods undergoing a process of fossilization, who, while they retain the privileges, have disburdened themselves of the pains and penalties of divinity. In the Jalno, we may without undue straining discern a successor of those temporary kings, those mortal gods who purchase a short lease of power and glory at the price of their lives. That he is the temporary substitute of the Grand Lama is certain, that he is, or was once, liable to act as a scapegoat for the people is made nearly certain by his offer to change places with the real scapegoat, the King of Years, if the arbitrament of the dice should go against him. It is true that the conditions under which the question is now put to the hazard have reduced the offer to an idle form. But such forms are no mere mushroom growths, springing up of themselves in a night. If they are now lifeless formalities, empty husks devoid of significance, we may be sure that they once had a life and a meaning, if at the present day they are blind alleys leading nowhere, we may be certain that in former days they were paths that led somewhere, if only to death. That death was the goal to which of old the Tibetan scapegoat passed after his brief period of license in the marketplace is a conjecture that has much to commend it. Analogy suggests it. The blank shots fired after him, the statement that the ceremony often proves fatal, the belief that his death is a happy omen, all confirm it. We need not wonder, then, that the Jalno, after paying so dear to act as deputy deity for a few weeks, should have preferred to die by deputy rather than in his own person when his time was up. The painful but necessary duty was accordingly laid on some poor devil, some social outcast, some wretch with whom the world had gone hard, 
who readily agreed to throw away his life at the end of a few days, if only he might have his fling in the meantime. For observe that while the time allowed to the original deputy, the Jalno, was measured by weeks, the time allowed to the deputy's deputy was cut down to days, ten days according to one authority, seven days according to another. So short a rope was doubtless thought a long enough tether for so black or sickly a sheep, so few sands in the hourglass, slipping so fast away, sufficed for one who had wasted so many precious years. Hence, in the jack-pudding who now masquerades with motley countenance in the market-place of Lhasa, sweeping up misfortune with a black yak's tail, we may fairly see the substitute of a substitute, the vicar of a vicar, the proxy on whose back the heavy burden was laid when it had been lifted from nobler shoulders. But the clue, if we have followed it aright, does not stop at the Jalno. It leads straight back to the Pope of Lhasa himself, the Grand Lama, of whom the Jalno was merely the temporary vicar. The analogy of many customs in many lands points to the conclusion that, if this human divinity stoops to resign his ghostly power for a time into the hands of a substitute, it is, or rather was once, for no other reason than that the substitute might die in his stead. Thus, through the mist of ages, unillumined by the lamp of history, the tragic figure of the Pope of Buddhism, God's vicar on earth for Asia, looms dim and sad as the man-god who bore his people's sorrows, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Section 4. On Scapegoats in General the foregoing survey of the custom of publicly expelling the accumulated evils of a village or town or country suggests a few general observations. In the first place, it will not be disputed that what I have called the immediate and the immediate expulsions of evil are identical in intention. In other words, that whether the evils are conceived of as invisible or as embodied in a material form is a circumstance entirely subordinate to the main object of the ceremony, which is simply to effect a total clearance of all the ills that have been infesting a people. If any link were wanting to connect the two kinds of expulsions, it would be furnished by such a practice as that of sending the evils away in a litter or a boat. For here, on the one hand, the evils are invisible and intangible, and on the other hand, there is a visible and tangible vehicle to convey them away, and the scapegoat is nothing more than such a vehicle. In the second place, when a general clearance of evils is resorted to periodically, the interval between the celebrations of the ceremony is commonly a year, and the time of year when the ceremony takes place usually coincides with some well-marked change of season such as the beginning or end of winter in the arctic and temperate zones and the beginning or end of the rainy season in the tropics the increased mortality which such climatic changes are apt to produce especially amongst ill-fed ill-clothed and ill-housed savages is set down by primitive man to the agency of demons who must accordingly be expelled hence in the tropical regions of New Britain and Peru, the devils are, 
or were driven out at the beginning of the rainy season. Hence, on the dreary coasts of Baffin land, they are banished at the approach of the bitter Arctic winter. When a tribe has taken to husbandry, the time for the general expulsion of devils is naturally made to agree with one of the great epochs of the agricultural year, as sowing or harvest. But as these epochs themselves naturally coincide with changes of season, it does not follow that the transition from the hunting or pastoral to the agricultural life involves any alteration in the time of celebrating this great annual rite. Some of the agricultural communities of India and the Hindu Kush, as we have seen, hold their general clearance of demons at harvest, others at sowing time. But, at whatever season of the year it is held, the general expulsion of devils commonly marks the beginning of the new year. For, before entering on a new year, people are anxious to rid themselves of the troubles that have harassed them in the past. Hence, it comes about that in so many communities, the beginning of the new year is inaugurated with a solemn and public banishment of evil spirits. In the third place, it is to be observed that this public and periodic expulsion of devils is commonly preceded or followed by a period of general license, during which the ordinary restraints of society are thrown aside, and all offenses, short of the gravest, are allowed to pass unpunished. In Guinea and Tonkin, the period of license precedes the public expulsion of demons, and the suspension of the ordinary government in Lhasa, previous to the expulsion of the scapegoat, is perhaps a relic of a similar period of universal license. Amongst the Haas of India, the period of license follows the expulsion of the devil. Amongst the Iroquois, it hardly appears whether it preceded or followed the banishment of evils. In any case, the extraordinary relaxation of all ordinary rules of conduct on such occasions is doubtless to be explained by the general clearance of evils which precedes or follows it. On the one hand, when a general riddance of evil and absolution from all sin is an immediate prospect, people are encouraged to give the rein to their passions, trusting that the coming ceremony will wipe out the score which they are running up so fast. On the other hand, when the ceremony has just taken place, men's minds are free from the oppressive sense, under which they generally labor, of an atmosphere surcharged with devils, and in the first revulsion of joy they overleap the limits commonly imposed by custom and morality. When the ceremony takes place at harvest time, the elation of feeling which it excites is further stimulated by the state of physical well-being produced by an abundant supply of food. Fourthly, the employment of a divine man or animal as a scapegoat is especially to be noted. Indeed, we are here directly concerned with the custom of banishing evils, only in so far as these evils are believed to be transferred to a god who is afterwards slain. It may be suspected that the custom of employing a divine man or animal as a public scapegoat is much more widely diffused than appears from the example cited. For, as has already been pointed out, 
the custom of killing a god dates from so early a period of human history that in later ages, even when the custom continues to be practiced, it is liable to be misinterpreted. The divine character of the animal or man is forgotten, and he comes to be regarded merely as an ordinary victim. This is especially likely to be the case when it is a divine man who is killed. For when a nation becomes civilized, it does not drop human sacrifices altogether. It at least selects as victims only such wretches as would be put to death at any rate. Thus the killing of a god may sometimes come to be confounded with the execution of a criminal. If we ask why a dying god should be chosen to take upon himself and carry away the sins and sorrows of the people, it may be suggested that in the practice of using the divinity as a scapegoat, we have a combination of two customs which were at one time distinct and independent. On the one hand, we have seen that it has been customary to kill the human or animal god in order to save his divine life from being weakened by the inroads of age. On the other hand, we have seen that it has been customary to have a general expulsion of evils and sins once a year. Now, if it occurred to people to combine these two customs, the result would be the employment of the dying god as a scapegoat. He was killed, not originally to take away sin, but to save the divine life from the degeneracy of old age. But, since he had to be killed at any rate, people may have thought that he might as well seize the opportunity to lay upon him the burden of their sufferings and sins, in order that he might bear it away with him to the unknown world beyond the grave. The use of the divinity as a scapegoat clears up the ambiguity which, as we saw, appears to hang about the European folk custom of carrying out death. Grounds have been shown for believing that in this ceremony, the so-called death was originally the spirit of vegetation, who was annually slain in spring, in order that he might come to life again with all the vigor of youth. But as I pointed out, there are certain features in this ceremony which are not explicable on this hypothesis alone. Such are the marks of joy with which the effigy of death is carried out to be buried or burnt, and the fear and abhorrence of it manifested by the bearers. But these features become at once intelligible if we suppose that the death was not merely the dying god of vegetation, but also a public scapegoat, upon whom were laid all the evils that had afflicted the people during the past year. Joy on such an occasion is natural and appropriate, and if the dying god appears to be the object of that fear and abhorrence which are properly due not to himself, but to the sins and misfortunes with which he is laden, this arises merely from the difficulty of distinguishing, or at least of marking the distinction, between the bearer and the burden. When the burden is of a baleful character, the bearer of it will be feared and shunned just as much as if he were himself instinct with all those dangerous properties of which, as it happens, he is only the vehicle. Similarly, we have seen that disease-laden and sin-laden boats are dreaded and shunned by East Indian peoples. Again, the view that in these popular customs 
the Death is a scapegoat as well as a representative of the divine spirit of vegetation, derives some support from the circumstance that its expulsion is always celebrated in spring and chiefly by Slavonic peoples. For the Slavonic year began in spring, and thus in one of its aspects the ceremony of carrying out death would be an example of the widespread custom of expelling the accumulated evils of the old year before entering on a new one. End of chapter 57